Blog Talk Radio. Network. I'm your host, Tori Gates. The year is 1841, and Ben Pulaski has returned home to Maryland to try and rebuild his life and reconnect with his family. Ben puts his sailing skills to work on a canal boat, and the reader is taken on an epic tour of life through the 19th century. Released in 2014, Pulaski's Canal is the first of a series of historical novels that bring to life a time gone by. Author Robert Lackey has traveled the world as an author, a soldier, a photographer, and administrator. His adopted home of Robert Grace is the backdrop for the series, which is about to see the 10th volume of release, and he joins us today. Robert, welcome to the show. Thank you, Tori. Happy to be here. Well, let's uh, go back to where we first met. Uh, we were just talking before we went on the air that we met down in that town in Maryland, and um, we did a book signing with some uh, fellows at, in 2019 at Washington Street Books. That's where we first met, and uh, yes. I just remember that was an awful lot of fun because it was so interesting to just do a signing in a different place. and. Uh, I was drawn to the numerous authors, but also the the drive you've made toward a, these historical works. Uh, let's talk about where the canal began for you, Pulaski's story, and and how it's really developed. Well, I um, I moved to Habit of Grace in uh, 1993, and within a matter of weeks, uh, of course, I was drawn to the history of the town and the architecture that that harkens back to the 19th century. Uh, and I discovered uh, the lock house at the uh, north end of town uh, that was the uh, at the head of, the, of an old canal. Uh, and that became uh, weekend hikings for me to go up and down the canal. Uh, and as I did that, um, several miles north of town, I discovered the, the ruins of a little 19th century town called Lapidum. Uh, and I would I would stand there and imagine what life must have been like with that hillside town overlooking the river, uh, the, the the remnant of the of the uh, canal beside it, and the the uh, granite stone uh, lock that opened and closed to allow the barges to go through. And I absolutely fell in love with that theme and that time. Wow. And uh, how much of how much of the locks remain? How much uh, will, will people find if they venture up through there? There's only two locks remaining that uh, appear uh, whole, uh, although both are without gates. Uh, the one is at the lockhouse in in Have the Grace, uh, and beautifully, beautifully kept up and uh, re- refurbished lockhouse. Uh, inside, it's going through the 19th century all over again. The lock house and an incredible swing bridge of several uh, tons 
can be moved by a single small person. It's just an amazing thing. And the other lock that remains at Lapidum, uh, five miles down, uh, bits and pieces of the, the canal, the dugout portions of the canal remain. Uh, the, the people in Havre de Grace, uh, many of those that belong to the Lockhouse Museum Society, uh, and I refer to as the keepers, the people who pull together remnants of times past that's not fallen into the category of a, an official government-sanctioned museum, but that pulled it together themselves. And it's, it's, an, it's an amazing introduction to that time period and that life. Oh, that's amazing. Well, uh, it's interesting when you just visit a place either physically as you did or sometimes we just transform, transport ourselves, I guess is the word, which I have done in some of my writing, is there must have been quite a feeling when you got hit that suddenly you're thinking, not only are you standing on a place of history where you know so many past generations have gone through and worked and all that, and it's like, what kind of a feeling did you get when you thought, hey, I've got a story here, or, or how did it come about? Well, I had written a couple of other, other books, uh, uh, nothing at this level. Um, so so the, the, the idea of that tool was there. Uh, plus, being, uh, being a history nerd from my childhood and having a father who insisted that in order for us to learn history, we had to walk through the buildings, walk over the battlefields, uh, smell the air, feel the heat. It was a very physicality way of teaching history. And so that, that, that put in me the idea that I wanted those sensations uh, for, for Havre de Grace and for the Susquehanna and Tidewater Canal. And the story began to arise as, as an idea of me simply imagining who was there. Additionally, uh, as I developed into the idea of a theme for a book, uh, I began to see the Susquehanna and Tidewater Canal as actually a character because it flowed daily from the free state of Pennsylvania, 30, uh, 45 miles north, into the slave state of, of Maryland. And, and uh, right. <clears throat> the contradiction in the history was just almost overpowering. And that became the, the, the launching point uh, for the characters that I developed for the book. And with that also, you know, the area of Harvard Grace is at the pivotal area because it's right right at the top of the Chesapeake Bay, mouth of the Susquehanna. That is a huge point. And before, you know, tech, more modern technology came in, the canal was was one of the only ways to get goods moving. And this is this was this was a huge uh, thoroughfare for business during this period, which you highlight. Oh yes, the, the canal was the and, and, and indeed all of the waterway canals on the east coast in the 19, in the 1800s were the interstate system of the time, and villages sprung up along the canal at the locks, and the the villages themselves drew people, and the people drew commerce, or rather the commerce drew the people, uh, and the goods flowed up and down those 45 miles. Uh, as as uh, a, a sampling of what the, the the country was doing at the time, uh, it set mm -hmm. the stage for me populating it with with the characters that I developed. 
Mm-hmm. Well, let's get into those fellows. Uh, the the main character, Ben Pulaski. This is a this is an interesting story. Here is a guy that his family and pretty much everyone else thought was dead at sea. All of a sudden, he resurfaces, and some people aren't too happy to see him. So it's like, could you set the story of of Ben coming back? How did you come across him, and and what? What places him at this point? When I, when I developed the basic four characters for this one book, and I expected it to simply be one book as I explored it, but I, I, <laughs> I wanted a strong-willed man, uh, a strong-willed woman. Um, I wanted him to have a couple of boys uh, and, and a daughter. That was my original intent. Uh, so I had to assign him a series of duties to perform in this in this book. Uh, they had to be representative of what was being experienced in and the attitudes then, but at the same time have the, oh, uh, more than a dash of obstinance uh, in their characters. So mm-hmm. when, when Ben comes home after being absent and, and, and thought dead, uh, uh, and he had left his family with money when he went away to sea, but it was much, much longer than he expected. The money was long gone. Uh, an ice gorge had occurred, uh, dev- destroying their, their home. Uh, the wife is destitute, living in a shack in the back of a doctor's yard. Uh, and the boys are, are, are hirelings of 12 and 13 years old, living on the canal barges as their only place, except to come visit their, their mother in the shack. So we started from a very low point. Uh, I would add to that, uh, while, while, uh, while he was gone, um, uh, a child was born, the one he fathered right before he left, but he didn't know. And during the ice gorge, the child was taken from the mother. And so yep. the news that, that uh, Ben learns when he arrives is not only the devastation of his family's lifestyle, but the loss of that little baby. Mm-hmm. And that was a thing that you, you created right away, a rough, hard scrabble type of existence. And it's interesting, too, that you talk about uh, developing the characters and assigning them them roles. It's partly in the writing process for all of us, I think, is when we're creating characters, we're trying to fit people into the time that they would live in and trying to figure out what would they really be like. Um, your understanding of history, and I, I would see the same thing because I, I was a history nut too, that you've got to figure out what were they really like. What kind of sourcing did you use? What did you read? What did you look into when you started to build Ben's character, build Sonia's character, the characters of the sons and that kind of thing? Well, uh, I had I had gobbled up all kinds of novels and books uh, all through childhood, and a James Lee Burke fan and a C.S. Forrester fan. So I had a pretty good idea of a um, a recalcitrant uh, hero, but also one with his own warts. Uh, my initial understanding of the woman's personality was very flat and and, and very cardboard, and. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, I tell people that the spirit of Sonia, that character, is my wife, Sandy. 
Uh, I began yeah. to discuss with her some of the some of the scenes and chapters I was writing, and she said, "Oh no, 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 no! That that woman should not have done that. Would not have done that." And although uh-huh. my wife is not a physical re- rebel, uh, her spirit is, and so we we began a series of long conversations about what Sonia should be doing in these situations as as a mother, as a woman. Uh, as a woman of the of the 19th century, and that character grew and expanded, and which is which is why the when I released uh, Pulaski's Canal, I dedicated it to my wife Sandy because she is the spirit of Sonia. And interesting to get that other point of view. And was she was she coming from the feminine ideal of this is what she do? What was was there something else that she drew upon? Do you think? Well, she came from a strong fa- a, a, a family of strong women, uh, not yep. not overbearing, but but backbone, uh, and she she brought that with her in her in her Southern Belle style. But it's the Southern Belle style of an iron backbone, uh, which is an amazing uh, combination. Uh, so so that had significant influence on on how I viewed Sonia and and uh, how that helped me. And also through uh, you know, additional reading, uh, there, there was a lot of research going into this. I'm sure. Um, and also, you have their sons Isaac and Aaron. And you talk about a couple of boys that are basically doing what they have to do to survive. And I liked how both of them just they had their own personalities, and yet there's this. It's like you sort of put those two together. It's like, yeah, your brothers, you're two different guys, but your brothers, and that was pretty cool. Well, my greatest inspiration for that was the fact that I had two uh, very strong-willed boys mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, at that age, uh, 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 just just coming into their teens. And so it was easy to look at them uh, and then picture them uh, where I had the, the images of uh, I, that I had of them uh, in the in the nineteenth uh, century, uh, and so it, it was actually very easy to write them. The challenge was to hold them back. <laughs> yep, that's cool. Um, taking a look at some of these other folks, I am really very intrigued. I, I noted at the beginning in uh, the way we set things up was that there's some interesting characters that just sort of pass through. And I wanted to talk about a couple of them. Um, I especially loved uh, Mickey, this Irishman who just kind of rolls along into the story and just sort of finds his way to Ben and starts working with him. He was a fun. He was a fun character in his own very rough way. Yeah, I I enjoyed writing him. Um... Michael Patrick O'Grady uh, uh, comes in after a great loss of his own, and uh, in the early days, yeah, he was he was stereotypical uh, in of the the drunken Irishman, the, the negative stereotypical. But in the journey of the book, especially the first book, uh, we learn what his life had been and the horrible things he had endured, and uh, the honorable and forthright man he was, and. Uh, uh, friend that he became, and he is in I think eight eight of the ten books. He is he is a, a frequently recurring character that's not in the background. He's in the foreground, uh, and in your face, 
uh, and also a friend to rely on and depend on. Uh, he became far more than I anticipated when I first developed the character, although the potential mm-hmm. was there. Uh, and he advances through the series from a simple uh, barge hand on the canal to a, a Union Army surgeon uh, uh, at, at Gettysburg in, in book uh, in book nine, uh, ten. Uh, no, eight. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's okay. You get those mixed up at times. Um, that's cool too because it's like I'm I've tended to write in series in the past, mostly stuff that's not published. Uh, my current series has found the same thing. It's like you create a character and you think, okay, he's going to serve a purpose, and then all of a sudden as you write on and these books write themselves, some of these characters that you didn't expect, they come back and all of a sudden they assume a new role. They And it's really interesting. It's like all of a sudden they're back in your mind and they're like, hey, I'm over here. And they become much more than you ever planned. That's one of the cool things about a series, I think. Yes, yes, I agree. Uh, the seed, uh, the seed was planted, although I didn't have it in mind at the time. But the, the seed for for uh, Mickey's journey was planted in the first book, uh, when Ben uh, takes his first tentative step and in, in helping uh, uh, slaves uh, escape, runaways escape from Maryland to uh, to Pennsylvania. And there's a there's a uh, a conflict at the line between the two states, and uh, Ben is uh, is significantly injured, um, and with not enough hands to help the people who were injured, uh, he uh, Mickey is uh, more or less forced by uh, the the one escaping slave that has some surgical skill. Uh, he is forced to sew up Ben's head, uh, and, and introduces him to uh, uh, to his new avocation. Mm-hmm. Now, actually, you're leading to one of the next questions I had. We'll get to that. Um, one of the other characters that I really was so interested in and fascinated by was Simon. Here is a black man who has learned to read, who is intelligent beyond and, – and, of course, we're, we're considering the times of the 19th century and the way blacks were looked at and looked down upon. But here's a man who – has really done something and or has so much potential to him. Uh, I was thinking because I just heard on NPR the other day sort of an oral history of Frederick Douglass's life and how he learned to read um, because he was the designated playmate of a white child. That child's mother taught him how to read. And then there, there was more about his escape toward uh, New York to, uh, you know, to get his own freedom, that kind of thing. Where does Simon come from? Where does he fit? Uh, two things. Uh, the, the relationship between uh, Simon and, and Ben go back to uh, uh, Ben's far earlier years, and we, we get little vignettes of that here and there. The character was based on... Well, my earlier years and in, in my early teens and up until I went to college, uh, I lived in Southern Maryland, St. Mary's County. Uh, and in St. Mary's County, there is still a, a, a plantation that, that's shown uh, from a hist- on a historical tour called Southerly. And at one time, one of the, uh, one of the owner's uh, relatives uh, um, who had been classically educated began to teach some of the, the, some of the slaves 
Uh, and so I had Simon as one of his pupils, as well as one of his slaves in Southern Maryland. That's Simon's background. And so Simon Bond is uh, the character is actually uh, formally educated in Greek and Latin, uh, and he 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 speaks not with a typical uh, slave accent, but he speaks uh, as an educated uh, man at the time. Uh, and indeed, one of the ways that uh, Ben uh, and other friends know that Simon may not be telling the truth is when he begins to speak low, uh, like like in 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 a slave dialect of the time, because normally yes. his speech is very very uh, uh, clean and clear. So yes, that's that's, and... his, that's the basis for his uh, uh, origin. Uh, and it carries through in his approaches to problem solving in all the books. And this is also a period, and you, you talk about them more in the next book, but this is a period when fugitive slaves are making their way northwards, and uh, there were slave catchers working the region you know, that were hired to you know, track down fugitive slaves, bring them back, that sort of thing. On the question of slavery, how difficult was it to approach the subject, and did you feel you had to walk a line anywhere in there while you're doing it? I I was brought up in the South, so the awareness of slavery uh, was was always with me. Um, My my intent with Simon uh, and and that, that pursuit of writing him is based on a lot of research that I did, not the least of which was Frederick Douglass, uh, and and also uh, other other well-known uh, and eloquent speakers of the time, uh, such as the speech in Philadelphia, "I am a woman." Um, mm-hmm. That that gave me an attitude. And I also have to hearken back to my own mother and father uh, that their their teachings to me of what they thought about slavery was not the stereotypical Southern, we help them out. They saw it for right. what it really was. So that was part of my core understanding is that these were prisoners held yeah. by uh, a, a, an immoral law. Mm-hmm. And it's very intriguing, too, because I, without giving it all away, Ben is going to end up sort of being involved in that operation of, you know, bringing, you know, the transfer from slave states to free states, which, but, and and it's like, you were just talking now about the strength and a certain sense of morality beneath all of his nature and his roughness, Ben really has a moral compass. He has a core and, and Sonia has a core, and it's really interesting how you slowly developed that and brought him out in the story, especially Ben. It took time with him, but it was like a slow burn. My approach with him, uh, the, the parallel that I drew from you know my perspective in, in this era uh, is what a person would face uh, breaking federal law. Uh, based on the the way we're brought up. And and so from the laws of slavery in the 1840s uh, were were as profound 
uh, as the laws for drug addiction, kidnapping, et cetera, today. So I drew that as a as a, an emotional parallel uh, as as I, as I, I wrote the approach for that. Mm-hmm. And uh, let's see, looking at uh, another portion of this. Um, it was it was humorous in a way, but your website and you know offered up a number of maps, photos, and also some interesting pictures on the canal boats themselves. Um, tell us a little about the boats that uh, were plying the canal. We're kind of going back to that, but that leads me to my question of what are these boats like? And they were all a little bit different based on Ben's experience as he's trying to figure out what he's going to do. Tell us about them. Well, most of the canal barges that ran the Susquehanna and Tidewater Canal were actually Pennsylvania-built barges. And there was three or four different basic designs driven primarily by um, the the length of the journey, uh, which determined uh, how many mules you needed, uh, and also where you were going when you got there. Were you going out into open water or, or would the, the barge just simply be in a holding pond at each end? The Susquehanna and Tidewater Canal was the, the more simplified type in that there was a canal basin in Wrightsville, Pennsylvania, and then 45 miles south in Havre de Grace, there was another canal basin, a, a, a man-made lake of about 12 acres. So the barges were built with the understanding that they would be on the road for about a day and a half which is what the trip took for 45 miles. Mm-hmm. And you walked right. it two or three miles an hour. So going up, they're going against a slight current, uh, but there is no need to have on board, let's say, uh, a manger or a barn for the off-duty uh, mules uh, like the C&O barges do. C&O barges have three little compartments um, for yep. for people and for mules. For the barges that went along the Susquehanna and Tidewater Canal, there was a central cabin, a little oh, 10 by 10 cabin. Uh, and if they if they rested a mule on, on the barge uh, while simply one could pull it, because it was a team of two mules, uh, they would just simply uh, tie the mule to the bow of the barge uh, and let the other one pull it. But that was when it was empty and when it was going downstream. The other times there was two two mules. Now the the locks uh, were long enough that they could take in two canal barges at a time because you've got to wait fifteen or twenty minutes for the uh, uh, for the uh, the lock to empty or fill so that you could go to the next level. Locks are canal on canals are essentially stair steps going up a hill with large uh, large lengths of, of flat water in between them. So the locks kept mm-hmm. that. So to, to minimize the waiting period, they built the locks big enough to hold two barges at a time. The barge users figured out it would be much more uh, economical to tie these barges at the uh, you know, bow to stern with big hemp rope. And so the, the tandem barge was very, very common, probably most common uh, going up and down the Susquehanna uh, Canal. You would only need one tiller man you would need somebody uh, guiding the mules. And so the same labor used for one barge could be applied for two barges. So you, you, you increased your cargo and your profit. Okay. And how did the ugly boat come about? <laughs> ah, um, 
I had I had seen uh, scows while I was in Europe, uh, and I had seen uh, scows on the Chesapeake Bay, old pictures of them. Uh, a scow is a flat-bottom boat that's suitable for going in shallow water. Uh, and, and so for Ben, re- reclaiming his life, uh, I, I had him uh, in, in mutual investment in building his own canal barge, which was his intention, so he could, you know, make some money for his family. Uh, but it was destroyed by the same ice gorge that uh, destroyed his family's home. And what was left was not long enough to be a full barge, but it was still long enough to be useful. So in, in the, the, the pages that describe that rebuilding of, of the, uh, the damaged barge, he winds up with basically a scow. And that's, that's a, I have a couple of those in demonstration on my uh, history page on my website. But it also sailed. Uh, he was smart enough to realize, as some bargemen were, that they didn't have to wait for some other ship to pull them down to the destination port. Uh, and so it became a sailing barge. Uh, and with that, he began to pull other barges, and, and that's how he grew his business and, and uh, saved money not having to pay a steam tug. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that uh, another interesting subplot in the story is as Ben is trying to get his life back together, get his get a business going, um, you, you throw in, and I am certain that there were quite a few people in those days that saw bankers as evil people or just people that were out for themselves. You bring up a, a fellow named Benterfield who apparently holds something over Ben's head, but then there's the mystery of whether or not this really exists. Tell us about this fellow. Uh, in the 1840s, the concept of a mortgage was just beginning. Uh, so uh, mm-hmm. up until then, if you wanted to buy land to build a house, you had to come up with at least half the money up front, uh, and then they would expect the rest of it within 90 days. But uh, wow. banks at that time were, were uh, um, loosely controlled or, or, or not. <laughs> um, and so, right. so the mortgage began. Uh, and, and the mortgage from the very, very beginning, the mortgage concept was tainted by people who would take ill advantage of it. So he, he became uh, my financial villain uh, who also lusted after Sonia. And uh, he just—it's it, interesting to watch that that sort of that battle. There's sort of that that uh, you know, it's like this is yet another fight that that Ben has to fight, and uh, you carried that along really well through the story as to what was Bitterfield really up to, and the mystery of—it's like now Ben also has to solve a mystery or figure out what's going on. I thought that was, uh, it, it added an extra layer to the story. And um, actually that, that kind of leads me to this. Um, we talked briefly earlier about the length of this series. I mean, you're about ready to do the tent, get the 10th book ready. Um, did you ever believe you would write this many? <laughs> no, no, no. Uh- Book one, Pulaski's Canal, took me nine and a half years to write and finish and publish. Right. Um, of course, I had a day job, <laughs> bills to pay, uh, and, and, and my own saga to address uh, with my, right. my wife, Sandy, and my, and my boys. Um, 
And, and when I finished and I thought, okay, I've done it. Uh, I, I wanted to do this and, and I was proud of it. And, and so it, it went out there. Uh, and it was kind of like when, when I when I finished my bachelor's degree, I was so pleased not to not to have that uh, drudgery of of schooling. Um, and then within a couple of months, I was on my, on to my master's. Uh, and, and it was another I don't know unexplainable compulsion, but I, I couldn't let the characters go. Uh, I felt that there were enough seeds planted in Flasky's Canal that I wanted to address a little bit more. And so my approach to writing other books was to do the same period study I did and to spend actually weeks reading digitized newspapers from, from those years, uh, uh, you know, downloaded from the Library of Congress, so I could see everyday words being used in, in the newspapers and the thought processes. And it just, it just compelled me to take it to the next step. About that same time period, now, now I, I, I started in 1841 with Pulaski's Canal and with uh, uh, Pulaski's Redemption, which I just released July the 4th in Annapolis, uh, is, mm -hmm. it's 1870. So I, I followed these people for 39 years. With, with the second book, I, I, I began a, a process of defining the book uh, by the the year or years it was going to cover. This was even going into the outline preparation. What years? And then I would, and then I would immediately start looking. All right, what was happening in the United States during those years? What was happening in Maryland during those years? What was significant to have with a grace during those years? And 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 that gave me the foundation and the the reality to which the characters are presented, and then they have to respond to that. And there's your proof right there of the of history and doing the work and doing the real research to to go back and look at even just look at the everyday language. That's amazing, and that yeah. came through in the work. And that's um, leads me to the other thing of one of your jobs, your you know real jobs if we want to call it that, involved technical writing. How do you adapt that? How did you adapt that skill to fiction, or did you? I, I, there are parts of it that definitely were. Um, uh, one of the things that uh, the corporation I worked for did was to help the U.S. Army prepare its annual report to to Congress on on certain projects, and so people mm -hmm. jokingly say, "Well, there's your credits for fiction." Uh, it, it wasn't true. <laughs> But what, what was extremely useful, what was extremely useful was that when you're, when you're participating in technical writing, especially when it involves both uh, government policy and science, is that there is a, an incredible editorial burden that you, you must deal with. Uh, so, you know, there was no free form of anything, you know, except maybe the use of the English language. But the editorial process was, was, was stringent and exacting, mm -hmm. uh, but it, it produced a document that, was, that you could be proud of. And so I, that was a significant lesson I learned from my years as a technical writer. And, and so having an editor, whether it's one part of a publishing house or whether it's one that I subcontract with based on the, the book of the time, uh, I, the product won't be worth reading if it can't be read well and understood clearly. 
and you can't, a writer cannot do that without an editor and the editorial process. So typically, I will hire a, a, a developmental editor and then later on a copy editor, and, and I've been blessed over the years with, with a, 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 a dozen or more beta readers who are retired teachers and uh, magazine editors themselves who read the, the next to the final manuscript. So I, I send them this for markup copies, uh, and they send it mm-hmm. back to me. So that's my editorial process. So yeah, that's, I, that's, that's a great. I, I learned that from from being a technical writer. All right. Well, let's take a look now into a little more of your origins. You talked a little bit about your interest in history, uh, your father's encouragement. Uh, obviously, your father was an inspiration in himself. Um, you talked also a little bit about T.S. Forster and other writers. What specifically, what really got you growing up? What range of reading did you have and uh, at hand, and what took you? Well, actually, my father introduced me to C.S. Forrester when I was 11. He had an Argosy magazine in which they had done a couple of chapters from one of C.S. Forrester's books on the character um, Horatio Hornblower. Uh, yes. an English naval officer coming from uh, low means and, and rising to high responsibility. Uh, the thing about C.S. Forrester, by the way, he also wrote uh, The African Queen. Uh, so C.S. Mm-hmm. Forrester was, was uh, a, a favorite of mine. But uh, the character of Horatio Hornblower in the series uh, by C.S. Forrester showed a person with uh, great, great skills, great technical skills, uh, but but not not uh, not fashionable skills, not social skills, uh, other than you know the, the basic ones. Uh, and he was ill at ease with both cer- with, with ceremonial attention. So I I brought that to Ben and Sonia, uh, James Lee Burke. Uh, uh, I am in awe of this writer. I have, have always been um, since my early teens. Uh, and one of his main characters in his Show series based in New Iberia, Louisiana, first of all, a Southerner, and coming from those Southern roots and in some cases overcoming those Southern roots. But he had the issue of having been an alcoholic. And so there was this, this constant battle in his character of, number one, his old propensities, and a a a, a common uh, character, uh, which which I thought was his actually his, the alter ego for this one, was uh, uh, a private detective uh, named Cleet, who was uh, easily turned into the bully and quick to, quick to violence. And so, so I think I I love the way James Lee Burke uh, developed these characters. Uh, here, here recently I I saw a. Uh, uh, a comment uh, on uh, the release of one of Burke's uh, uh, recent novels, uh, and the the uh, uh, the quote was: uh, "James Lee Burke writes crime novels that reads like poetry." Wow! And and I'm thinking, if anybody could ever say such a thing about any sentence I ever wrote, I I would I'm finished. I, I couldn't do any better than that. <laughs> that is that is an extraordinarily high compliment. Yes, and. I 
I guess for me, the highest compliment I ever got was a very recent one by an old friend who just flat out, who has read some of my work and just said, you are a writer. You are this person. That's nice. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And it's very flattering, but it's I also understand. sort of, yeah, it's sort of like the feeling of, okay, this work we've done all these years, that means so much. Um, now, an interesting thing, too, about these types of novels, I want to get into some of your other writing, too, but um, tell me about the reading audience that you have found for Pulaski's Saga. Who are they? What kind of, a, what kind of an audience has, has been attracted to this? Well, according to statistics, uh, my average reader is 52, uh, so so I'm not I'm not holding my breath for being uh, uh, competing with Harry Potter, et cetera, et cetera. Um, uh, I have I, I have a, um, I, I live in South Carolina now, but I'm still the new guy down here, and and uh, uh, I don't have as strong a following. I have a few brick and mortar places, um, but uh, the Chesapeake Bay. Uh, Western, uh, Eastern Virginia, uh, Maryland, uh, Eastern Shore, and some of Delaware, uh, that's probably where uh, 80% of my readers are from or, or live. Mm-hmm. And obviously you've got an audience. What kind of reactions do you get uh, f- from it? What sort of things do folks tell you about what do they like or perhaps not like about your work? Well, I... Uh, excuse the language, but I had an email about six months ago, and a guy said, "Get off your ass and write the next one, Lackey." So, <laughs> uh, <laughs> I found that uh, undeniable encouragement. Uh, but I was doing it anyway. So after the after my third book, I had several people say, "How come we have to wait so long?" Which oh, you know, a writer loves to hear that. So um, Mm -hmm. I I embarked on a period where I committed to writing two books a year. Uh, And with the editorial process and everything else, I was allowing myself 100 days for each novel, bearing in mind Mm -hmm. novel one took nine and a half years. But by then, I was doing this full time. Uh, And so with the the completion of number 10, um, uh, I have received a few lamentations that – that the series has come to an end, but uh, bear in mind the, uh, the Ben Pulaski to me is the embodiment of the 19th century. He is born mm-hmm. at, at the stroke of midnight in the year 1800, and so by Book Ten, which touches into 1870, he's 70 years old, and and Sonya is 65. You know, they're mm-hmm. they're 19th century. Uh, 70 and 65, so that, I think that's more robust than the ones today. Uh, but that's one of the reasons I wanted to stop there. Uh, but also, uh, all all the things that they accomplished and all the things that abolition accomplished was about to be destroyed by the Jim Crow laws. So I just didn't want to take it any farther. Um, and, and you really do take this man. I mean, like you say, he's lived a full life and. This is going to touch on, as we say, we've talked about, uh, you know, the the slavery situation, the Civil War. There's going to be, as you say, leading up into the years that that follow that. This is uh, this is a long series that has taken. It takes us through a, a very pivotal time in American history, but you've done it in such a fantastic way. Now, interesting, you were talking about uh, your sort of drive to do 
when you say a book in 100 days, are we talking draft one or are we talking something much more intense? Uh, we're talking uh, entering editing phase by others. Okay. And uh, another thing, too, was um, I guess the the next thing would be, did you have any, in terms of publishing it, what drove – what took you the direction that you did? Did you get any kind of response from major publishers or minor ones about whether or not this would work? And what did you decide was best for you? Well, I had I, I had belonged to three uh, three writers uh, groups over the years, uh, writers organizations, the uh, uh, in Philadelphia. Uh, uh, and uh, the Maryland Writers Association and the South Carolina Writers Association, of which I was president for a while. Uh, my my first my first published works were done by a small press, um, and and it was a thrilling thing. And um, I guess typically naive of all new writers when I was first published was, oh, I'm published now. They're going to do this and they're going to do that and the money right. will roll in, not. Uh, but, but I found out that the more I wanted better out of the process, the more of my own investment of time, energy, and ideas was necessary. Uh, and I was I was willing to do that, but I kept running into resistance and recalcitrance on the part of the publisher. Oh, we don't. We, we're not going to do that. Or oh, this one is this this cover is good enough. Uh, and I thought mm. here I am doing most of the work. So I pursued what it would what it would take to not not simply self-publish, you know, throw it out there to some uh, some fly-by-night thing uh, company that would print anything on paper just to get you to pay for it. Uh, I, I looked mm-hmm. for a process that would allow me to publish, and and mm-hmm. so it took more studying. Uh, uh, I found uh, I found links that were useful, many many links that were not. Uh, but what I have developed uh, is is my own publishing company, Heron Oaks Publishing, uh, and I controlled I controlled the uh, the graphics, I controlled the layout. Uh, yes, I'm responsible for the content, and so I subcontract to to uh, people with better eyes than me for finding uh, 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 faux pas. But I, I love I love running the whole process. Um, Let's see. The, the, uh, as as for covers, as for covers, it's worthy of note that there are there are many artists that I have met and seen that whose whose work I dearly love, uh, and there are some mm-hmm. photographers that I've met that impress the heck out of me. And so, mm-hmm. about half of my uh, novels covers came from arrangements with with artists. Indeed, uh, my third uh, Raven's Risk was based on a painting by uh, uh, John M. Barber, a famous uh, Chesapeake Bay uh, uh, artist. Um, Mm -hmm. And he was kind enough to not only allow me to uh, use one of his paintings, but I had to go into the digital level of it because I was going to alter the scene that I used. Uh, And he was, again, kind enough to to help me with it uh, so that it was uh, truly a, a, a mutual product of that cover. I'm very proud of that. Uh, Kingdoms mm-hmm. in the Marsh is based on a painting by Keith Wilkie, who was down here in South Carolina. Uh, and since the, the part of the theme of the book is dealing with the uh, uh, 
uh, uh, rice plantations in South Carolina during that, those pre-Civil War eras. And then a couple right. others. I, I've, I have used uh, photographers that uh, caught my eye, uh, Serpent's Compromise, that foreboding sky was a photograph. And then my last one, uh, Pulaski's Redemption, uh, which centers around uh, uh, the, the flood of 1870, is a, a marvelous photograph by Mal Baker that shows birds uh, 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 on a tree in a huge flood. Mm-hmm. And this is one of the cool things is you sometimes have to go outside and look. And um, my parent company, Sunbury Press Books, does offer cover services, but I had the great fortune of being put in touch by a friend, a mutual friend, to a guy named Mitch Bentley. And Mitch has done all of my covers because I was just blown away by his his uh, works in science fiction and uh, different areas. And we gave him a scene for my first book, Parasite Girls, which was a self-publish. And, you know, he took that idea and he blew it up. And when it came back, we were just like, yes. And so yes. Mitch just has that gift and we get along well. And so I have no problem uh, paying a man who does incredible work because I, I am one of those people who thinks the cover really does help make the book. Because if, yes. if, you, if somebody doesn't like the cover, if they get bored by it or they skip by it, they're never going to look inside sometimes. Yeah. yeah. Now, I, before we go, I, I'm, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, no, I'm just saying so true. I agree. I agree. I know my limitations. Well, uh, I am not an artist, but I but I, I know the art that I like, uh, and, mm-hmm. and that's that's the ones I choose for my uh, for my covers. Very cool. Now, before we go, you have also written elsewhere. Uh, you've written flash fiction. Uh, you won an award for a thing called A Tub in Memphis, and you've got a couple of other novels coming. Tell us about what's down this and what's down the road for you. Well, flash fiction, uh, I, I became involved with that because it forces you to put a whole story in, well, what was for me for 500 words. Uh, and so it really, it, it, it really impacts self-editing when you, when you want to tell a story and you want to tell it in, in exactly a, a specific number of words. Uh, the, the word selection process that drives many authors is heightened with that, and it was a, a marvelous exercise. And the culmination of that exercise was, was that contest that I entered uh, that, that wanted an alternative history. And I selected the, the assassination of Martin Luther King with an alternative history. But it also required me to delve into the nitty-gritty details of uh, the assassin's life leading up to uh, up to the attempt, uh, and it was it was extremely well received, and I, I, I was honored by the by the editors' res- uh, written responses, and, and when I won the contest. As That's far as cool. going forward. Oh, hello. Yes. Yes, I'm here. Oh, okay. Um, <laughs> uh, as far as going forward, uh, since I'm stopping with the with the Pulaski's in uh, uh, in 1870, I have written so much in the way of backstory and and, and history that that Ben relates to, to his children from time to time and to others that I have enough notes uh, and enough interest in revisiting Habit of Grace 
as a prequel. So that'll, I'm going to pick it back up in 1825 and take it forward until right before he leaves to go to China. Uh, and, and, so, and there's so much going on. It's the beginning of the, the canal and the building of the, the, the lighthouses and the, the beginning of the Chesapeake and Delaware Canal. There's, and that's when the little town really exploded in commerce um, in, the, in the decade after the devastation of the, of the British attack in 1813. So it's just so fertile for me to continue and to go back in time and, 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 and revisit my characters when they were uh, 25, when Ben was 25 and Sonia was 20. Uh, beyond that, beyond that, uh, I still have an interest, and my interest is still focused on Habit the Grace for right now. Habit the Grace has a, an incredible history during the 1920s as a destination for, for horse racers, uh, 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 whiskey peddlers, and even visited by, by Al Capone and, and uh, uh, several of his friends on a regular basis. Uh, so, again, there's fertile ground for, wait for it, the great-great-grandchild <laughs> of Aaron Pulaski and the great-great-granddaughter of Alicia Pulaski. So the family tree oh. will continue. <laughs> Excellent. Well, where can we find your books, and where will we find you? Well, uh, my, my website, rflackeybooks.com. Um, uh, uh, Amazon and Barnes and Nobles and all the internet bandits, uh, or at least most <laughs> of them, unless I've offended some of them, but it should be all of them. Uh, and then I, I, I have a dozen or so brick and mortar places in, in Maryland and uh, uh, New Mexico and uh, South Carolina and uh, Virginia, um, local places. Very cool. Well, I guess my last question for you, Robert, is uh, what advice do you give the aspiring author, no matter what they, what genre they write in? Don't talk about writing. Yes, do some research, but write. If you don't plant that seed, you're not going to have a crop, and uh, you won't have a bush to, to, to trim. Uh, sit down and write the story. And if you don't like it, throw it away and write it again. The only way to hone the craft of writing is to write. Put your thoughts down until you're satisfied with them and then get an editor who will tell you to change it. <laughs> well, amen to that. Well, listen, Robert, thank you so much for your time. I've had a great conversation with you, or at least I've heard one. Thank you for being on today. Thank you for inviting me. It's been a great pleasure for me, Tori. All right. I, hopefully I'll see you down that way again sometime. We'll have to do another book signing together and have it a grace. I think we should. All right. Be well and thank you. Thank you. Our, our guest on the Brown Posey Press Show today has been Robert Lackey, author of Pulaski's Canal, Blood on the Chesapeake, Raven's Risk, and many more. I'm Tori Gates, your host, author of the Brown Posey releases A Moment in the Sun, Live from the Cafe, and Searching for Roy Buchanan. The sequel to the latter, Call It Love, is set for release later in 2021. Thank you for listening. This is the Book Speak Network. 